What would happen if we paused and radically rethought the very essence and foundation of schooling and school systems? What new possibilities might emerge and how might we go about building racially just schools? Well, if you've ever wondered that, then you are in the right place because on this episode, I had the distinct honor and the great opportunity to break bread with, to chop it up with, to be in dialogue with the one and only Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. Jeff is a professor of Latina and Latino studies and race and resistance at San Francisco State University. He's also one of the co-founders of the Roses and Concrete Lab School in East Oakland. He's deeply rooted and grounded in his community in East Oakland, and he's lectured all over the world. In 2016, he was invited by President Obama to the White House for Teacher Appreciation Day. Now, in this episode, Jeff is dropping so many gems and the depths of his responses in our conversation is so vast that for the first time in the Racially Just Schools podcast, I'm actually going to divide this episode up into two episodes, in part because I really want you to pause and to take time and to reflect and to think about and engage in your practice a lot of the things that Jeff is talking about. And so I didn't want to squeeze too much information in because there is a lot here. And so this is the first of two episodes of my conversation with Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. If you ready, let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host. I'm super excited that you're back with us for another episode. Now, I just want to let you know off rip from the top that you're in the right place this episode. Hey, we have somebody with OG status, big homie status, the one and only Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. Jeff, welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast, my brother. Appreciate you, bro. Thanks for the invitation. Man, thank you. Thank you for making time, man. Before we begin, man, I just got to tell you and share some love, man. When I was in grad school, if I had to name three books that were the most influential in shaping my thinking and my praxis, man, The Art of Critical Pedagogy, the, the piece you and uh, Ernest Morell wrote is, is is one of those three, man. And plus your gangsters, wanksters, and rioters, man. I still use it when I'm working with teachers. So my brother, thank you for your work and everything you've been doing, man. Right on. So glad to hear it was, it was useful and one is never really sure <laughs> when we <laughs> write stuff and put it out there. So it's, it's always good to hear that, that folks were resonating with, with our experiences. You know, recently there has been just a lot of news coverage on these mass shootings. And I'm thinking particularly about the one in Buffalo with just this in targeted anti-black racism against black folks in the supermarket, as well as in Texas. Um, you got teen X children. Uh, you just walk up in the school and, and just and kill them. And so it's was, it was super tragic, um, both of these events. And what we know is that these are not um, isolated events, but they are connected. And I'm, I'm curious if you might speak to, you know, schools as possible points of interventions or even preventions in thinking about our society, but particularly um, young people with guns and, and mass shootings. You know, I, I think about <clears throat> some of these shootings that have 
uh, happened recently. And, you know, the one um, in Buffalo and the one in Uvalde in, in particular. Um, and it, it has been really striking to me <clears throat> um, to acknowledge that those two uh, young men were both 18 which means they, they just came out of our system, right? They just came out of, I mean, I don't know their educational history, right? But <clears throat> somewhere in the order of, you know, 13 consecutive years for seven hours a day, our public schools um, or some schooling system had access to those boys. And what, you know, I mean, the research around this is really clear that as much as I think our broader society and even educators sometimes point the finger at, you know, um, social media, you know, YouTube, video games, music, families, neighborhoods, whatever. Um, the truth is, is that that and, and the research is really clear about this, is that, that no institution has a greater impact on the development of children than schools because no institution gets more time with children during those really critical developmental years of five to 17, 18 years old. And so, um, you know, something went wildly wrong in the educational experience of those two young men to have them hate themselves so much that they could do the kind of tragic harm that they did. Um, and, you know, school, it, schools are not exclusively responsible for that, but, but one just has to wonder like what, what happened in all that time they had in school where they didn't love themselves. At the beginning of the podcast, how influential, you know, the art of critical pedagogy has been in my own practice and in my own work. And in that very first chapter, man, y'all come out hard. And I think y'all make a very important and profound clarification that our education system, it isn't broken, that it is actually functioning and producing the results that you were expected to get when it's riddled with disinvestment and, and systemic racism and settler colonialism and everything else. And so my question to you, man, can you talk to the listeners? There's a lot of educators and school leaders who listen to this podcast about the importance from starting from the place that the system is not actually broken and it's something that we have to fix, but like it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. Yeah. <clears throat> my position on that you know, some, I can't remember how long ago we, we released that book, but it's probably been close to 20 years. And um, my position on, on that hasn't changed at all. If anything, I'm, I'm more lucid about, um, <clears throat> about that truth and, and that truth and our unwillingness to really wrap our heads and arms and hearts around that truth being a primary reason why we see almost no movement um, in the experience and the outcomes for the most vulnerable and wounded children, particularly black and indigenous children. Um, but, but more broadly speaking, I think, um, we are seeing more and more evidence about, um, just how troubling the impact is, um, of our school system on, on all of our children. And, um, and so, you know, when 
my new book is about to, to drop. And one of the things that I, I do in the new book is I actually spend a, a pretty decent amount of time going back and looking at the history of, of public schools in the U.S. Because, you know, I think um, that that one of the things that, that Malcolm X said is 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 particularly true here, which is he, he said that of all the forms of study, the one that's most likely to reward your efforts is the study of history, because the truth is always lying there. And I think so many educators um, that are doing the work every day and that are really, really trying to transform the experiences of the children that they serve in the communities really don't know the history of the system that they're, they're functioning in. And if you really study the history of, of public schools, then so much of what we're experiencing makes total sense. <clears throat> but there's, you know, um, Cornel West has, has called the U.S. Um, a, a, a death-dodging, death-ducking, and death-denying society. And, and I think that's true. And I would also sub in for death the word truth. I, I think that this society is allergic to the truth. And that that results in us, you know, as Santayana said, those who do not understand the past are doomed to repeat it. And, and I see us, right, I mean, I've been at this 30 years now as an educator in, in my community in Oakland. And, um, and, and, and you just see this repetition, right, that's, that's happening um, over and over and over again as people, um, I think, good hearted and really committed people look at the system and say, you know, we, th this can't be right. Like we need to change this without actually looking at the foundation. And so the, one of the metaphors that I often use to, to talk about what, what Ernest and I wrote uh, about all those years ago is that the idea of a house, and, you know, I ask audiences, uh, you know, how many of you own a house? And depending on, <laughs> on who's in the audience, the number of hands that go up can vary pretty widely. Um, but, you know, inevitably, there's some folks in the in the room that own a house. And I ask them, OK, when you bought your house, what was the first thing you had inspected? And they always say the foundation. Right. And then I say, well, you know, why not the why not the roof? Why not the, you know, the double pane windows? Why not the state of the art kitchen? Why not the flooring? Like, why the foundation? And of course, their answer is because if if the foundation's bad, then then any other investment that I make is is, you know, throwing good money after bad and it's all going to come in on itself. And I think that that's exactly what we see happening in, in our school system is that the foundation of public schools in this country is rotten. And um, I mean, the, 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 the purpose was um, in its original design and conception, a, a lot of which still exists in our current system, what wasn't just flawed, it was nefarious. Um, I mean, it had a very clear intention. And I think that if, when you <clears throat> have public discourse about, about U.S. schools, I think there's a general sensibility that it's a, it's a presumed public good. And, and I would like to, us to have <clears throat> community and, and, and national debate 
about that very question, because I think what the, what, well, I don't think I know that what the evidence shows is that it's not, and it's not for, for a, a fairly large cross section of children. It's not a public good. You know, they're, they're enduring school, they're suffering school. And, um, and it doesn't have to be that way. But if we're, if we're really going to get at, at that core issue, then we've, we've got to be willing to, to do foundational work. And I think that that foundational work really begins with one question. And that question is, for what? Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That, that, that question is profoundly powerful for what? Man, could you talk a little more about this idea of for what in these foundational questions? And as you do so, can you one talk to us about if we really wrestle with this question around for what, what are some of the things that will be prioritized and important in schools? But then also, what are some other fundamental questions that we need to wrestle with if we're going to radically rethink schools? Why as a nation? have we decided to take children by law from their families for 13 consecutive years for seven hours a day? Why, why are we doing that? And, and I don't think that we have, frankly, any really serious discussion about that question because we presume that it's actually the right thing to do. And, and I want us to question that. And look, I, you know, I, I want my son's in school. I want my sons to have that experience. But I think where, where my head has gone really in the last 10 years or so um, after the art of critical pedagogy, um, I stopped, you know, if, if you read that book, what you'll see is, is that Ernest and I reference a lot of um, educational research in there and a lot of sociological research in there. And um, in the last 10 years, I've, I've spent a lot less time looking at that research because I find it to be largely reproductive um, and uninventive and un, uncreative. Um, and, and where I've turned a lot of my energy is to, the, to areas like public health, social epidemiology, neuroscience, um, physiology, re- really trying to understand um, what are the impacts of this society we've built on the body and the brain? Like what's actually happening inside? Because that was what I was always kind of trying to get my thumb on with my students. Like I was always really trying to suss out, like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, because I knew that if, if I didn't get that right, that a lot of what I was seeing, the outward manifestation was, um, was a, re- a reaction to what was actually causal, which was how they were feeling. You know, it's interesting that you bring up this idea of feeling because I think that is a super important element of racial justice, particularly in what we come to measure, how we think about data, what's truly important, because, you know, you can feel 
racism. You can feel when folks are not well. So could you speak a little bit about the importance of feeling and the affective dimension as we think about this work, but also in light of what you mentioned earlier, getting at the foundation of what is important and what we should really be focusing on in schools. So um, what what I've seen um, in that research uh, across all those fields um, is, is suggestive of um, what I think is um, a, a pretty good uh, analytic for um, some of the core mistakes we're making in trying to make schools better. And, and that is that um, what we are largely focused on, you know, the, the one of my colleagues is a woman named Angela Duckworth, whose um, you know, work is widely known. And Angela did not, and I don't agree on a lot of things, but but I have a lot of respect for her and 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 her willingness to engage in like really meaningful debate. And anyway, she said to me once that we um, we measure what we treasure, and you know, I've said oftentimes that we, we measure what matters to us. And if you look at what we're measuring in schools, um, you know, psychometricians have said for years now that, that, that schools are measuring the wrong things because what we're measuring are actually lag indicators of, of youth development. So things like grades, test scores, attendance, like all the kind of like basic data that, most any school district is measuring. If you talk to a psychometrician um, or even to like assist somebody who's a systems change expert, they'll tell you that you can't actually use that data to improve that data because though all of that data um, is, is a lag indicator of a a child's development. And if you really want to improve a system, then you have to get lead indicator data. And um, and so if you look at those fields that I mentioned, right, public health, social epidemiology, neuroscience, et cetera, um, they're actually quite clear on what the lead indicators of youth development are, of child development are, of adolescent development. Um, there's really no debate in those fields. And part of that is because they've had massive breakthroughs in the last 10 to 15 years in their understanding of how the brain and the body work and how societal inputs like school affect the brain and the body. And so what, when I think about that question for what, um, I think about the lead indicators and, and I think about this not just as a teacher, not just as a researcher, but as a father, that what I want from my son's school, which is a school that we opened as a community and we you know, struggle all the time to deliver on the, the highfalutin rhetoric that we wrote in our mission vision. Right. It's hard. It's really hard. But as a parent. What I want is what I think pretty much every parent that I've ever been around wants, which is a singular promise. And that promise is that when, when I bring my sons to your doorstep and 
give them over to you and turn my back and walk away, which, by the way, is a pretty profound act when you think about it, um, that I just want one promise. And that promise is that my sons will be more well when I pick them up than they were when I dropped them off. For their seven hours with you, they'll be more well for it. And and I know as a veteran educator that doing that with every child every day is impossible. I mean, I can't even do it with my two sons by myself in the context of my home where like there's times when I jack it up as a parent. Right. And I don't as a parent, I don't actually expect that schools deliver on that promise every day because I know you can't. This is powerful. This is this is very powerful. And, you know, I really appreciate you naming the reality that schools can't fulfill that promise every single day because that's that's just real. Keeping it 100. Mom, I'm curious, then, if schools cannot keep that promise every day, how might they respond as a as um, an extension of that promise is for schools to say when we miss the mark with your son, that we will own it and we will atone. And atone is different than apology, right? And and I think what we teach in schools is apology. So kid does harm in the playground. What's the expectation? That they say sorry. And the other kid who got harmed is supposed to just accept the apology. And then we like dust it off and move on. But atonement is different, right? Atonement does require apology because I, I do think that that's important, right? Saying that I was I was wrong and I'm sorry. And what at, the, what atonement adds um, is a a commitment to the debt that's due because of the harm. And that's the only other piece I'd want to see from schools is that if you miss the mark with my son, own it. And the next day, pay down the debt, like right, put put more into my son the next day as a way to show my son that you're acknowledging that you missed the mark yesterday. And what what I know in the research uh, and from practice is that when we do that, when we say that the primary pers- purpose of school is the well-being of the children that go there, then the the lag indicators start taking care of themselves. And yeah, like I want my sons to read. Yes, I want my sons to be able to do, you know, mathematical computation. Of, Of course I do. But not at the expense of their wellness. And, and I know that if my sons are well, right, not just because they're my sons, but because I know the research, right, that I know that if children are well, that, that they self-actualize, right? They, 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 they start thriving um, and they become the very young people and students and, you know, intellectuals and academics and, and civically engaged, caring citizens that we want them to be. But you can't 
you can't curriculum your way to that. You can't bookworm your way to that. You can't test your way to that because the things that we're looking at that are so-called indicators of academic progress are ignoring, literally ignoring, not measuring at all. What we know are absolutely the core indicators of long-term sustainable well-being. And so here we are as a society pouring all of this time, energy, and resource. And yeah, sure, schools are not funded in the way that they should be, but we are dumping billions of dollars into a system that at its foundational core is not only deeply flawed, it's anti-democratic. It's actually disruptive of the creation of the society that we're saying we want to create. And, and, And I believe in the deepest part of my bones and And with these hands that I've labored with for 30 years, that it doesn't have to be that way. We have clear evidence that schools can be repurposed and that they can function fundamentally differently in the lives of children, in communities, and in our broader society. And I think we it's really important that we say that this isn't a pipe dream. Right. This isn't, um, you know, a, 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 a situation where we're like we're doomed. Right. There are real answers here. And the frustrating part for me is that we continually year after year refuse to tell the truth to just own it. how this sense of radical hope undergirds your work and is infused throughout it. And this idea about how schools can be fundamentally different. You know, I think one of the things that COVID-19 did was that it further exposed so many cracks and crumbles in our education system And I believe many people thought, you know, here's the chance, here's the opportunity for us to do something fundamentally and radically different. But often, in a lot of cases, many school districts just continue to do the same old things that they were doing. And I'm interested if you could speak a little bit to, you know, a number of districts have received um, millions of dollars or or will receive millions of dollars in COVID funds to respond to the impacts of COVID. And I guess what might you offer up to schools and to districts and even school board members um, who will have, you know, oversight of these funds of how they might think about doing something radically different in schooling so that it won't continue to produce the same old, same old. I really thought maybe (laughs) I hoped that coming out of COVID Right. Coming out of this total train wreck that was our attempted response at this, you know, global tragedy that folks would really take a hard look at themselves and that 
we would take a hard look at and use this right as an opportunity to take a hard look at schools and say, we're not going to come back to what we were doing before. Right. This is this is our window of opportunity, because who was going to question that? Like everything was up for grabs. And then. We did. We went right back to business as usual. And what we innovated around was how many swabs we could get up kids' noses. And I don't think that window's closed, but I do feel like there is a there is a growing appetite in our society right now to re- really like fundamentally rethink this project. And and I think that we have excellent research around ways to do that, that are good for children, that are good for families, that are good for teachers, that are good for leaders. And the question is whether or not we will muster the courage, character, and commitment to actually take a shot at that. And the last thing I'll say about this is, is that, you know, Michelle Fine, um, one of my uh, friends and colleagues from this work, she made a comment years ago that, that really stuck with me where she said that, you know, one of the things that, that frustrated her was that when teachers would innovate in their classroom, that they were seen as experimenting on kids as if the existing system is somehow not an experiment on kids. And, and I get it. Like it is really uncomfortable to think about that, to think about like, you know, better the evil, you know, than the one you don't. Right. And so it's kind of like, what if we like completely change schools and it's bad for kids. And, and I get that fear. I have that fear and schools are already bad for kids. And so I'm down to say that I know for certain that what we are doing right now is bad for children and by extension, bad for the future of this society. And so if I know that, then I have to find the courage and the humility to begin to seriously experiment with a fundamentally different mode of operation and purpose so that we can get to a place where schools are good for children. Jeff dropped so many gems and there's so much depth in what he shared with us that I really want to encourage you to listen to it again, to pause, to stop, to ponder, to have conversations with the folks that you work with, that you're engaged in building racially just schools with, to have some conversations about this. And that's not it. There's so, so much more that Jeff and I break bread and dialogue about that is going to be in the second part. So make sure you stay tuned because in our next episode, we talk about community responsive education. We talk about the difference between schooling and education. We even talk about 
to Pac. I'm Arusha Kaur, my main man, Pac. We talk about Pac and we talk about so much more. So as you continue to marinate on this one, don't forget there's another episode dropping very soon where you can get part two of my conversation with Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you that that this podcast is brought to you by www.raciallyjustschools.com. And when you join our community today, I will send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community and I look forward to meeting you. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining the Just Schools podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. Love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.